some people think little girls should be seen and not heard. One, two, three, four! People do feel very radically different about gender experience. I mean, that's just like the rules of feminism. That diversity is like the number one thing I think that has to be reckoned with. Agenda with women in the arts. Good morning, you're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio, your Saturday morning fix of art, politics, news and trash from a feminist perspective. My name's Katie Winton. And I'm Tanya Ali. Agenda on FBI Radio is broadcast on Gadigal land and I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people as the original custodians of the land we broadcast on and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I also acknowledge the significance of Redfern as a place of strength, resistance, knowledge sharing and storytelling for many communities and would like to honour that history. You might remember our chat with Amy Middleton last week, who's the editor of Archer magazine, uh, which was a really great conversation. And we caught up with Adolfo Aranjuez, uh, who's the editor-in-chief of Archer, uh, to chat a little bit more in detail about the latest issue, uh, which is a history issue. So stay tuned for that chat coming up in about 10 minutes, where Adolfo talks about intergenerational dialogue, representation, and his editing process. You might know him as an editor of VoiceWorks previously, as well as a writer and a poet. There's a really, really wonderful interview with Adolfo that was published by Liminal Magazine last year. We'll link to it on the agenda program page at fbirated.com. I highly recommend giving that piece a read. I'm such a big fan of Adolfo. He's so eloquent and inspiring. I'm really excited um, that we got to chat to him. And we also spoke to St. Vincent for today's show. She's playing a show tomorrow night at Carriage Works, one show only while she's in Sydney after playing at Dark Mofo last night. Yeah, I have to say, I found out a lot of cool things about St. Vincent this week. So instead of a support band for tomorrow night, her short film and directorial debut, The Birthday Party, is going to be screened before her performance at Carriage Works. So it's part of a horror anthology feature called XX, and it's about a children's birthday party that goes horribly wrong. Uh, She's also directing a feature film adaptation of Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray, and she has a mixtape delivery service on Apple Music where listeners call in, tell her their problems and she selects songs to assist them with whatever they're going through, which I is so cool. So, <laughs> so cool. I can't believe I didn't know it existed. I yeah. love that idea so much. Um, St. Vincent is so talented across like such a wide variety of mediums. I'm Yeah, I saw some pictures on Instagram from her set at Dark Mofo last night and I think Carriageworks is going to be in for a treat tomorrow. Yeah, she's an incredible guitarist and I've heard like very good reviews views of her live, uh, like kind of performance art set, really. So totally. Super excited about that. Um, I told her I'd see her at the show, so <laughs> I'll just be standing in the front waving. Uh, in pretty stark contrast to St. Vincent's show tomorrow, which I'm, you know, very excited about. What I'm not excited about is um, <laughs> the Brian Jonestown massacre show that happened last Friday night in Sydney, where Anton Newcomb, uh, he just made a super awful rape joke on stage, which I'm not going to repeat because it truly never needs to be repeated ever again. Um, you can Google it if you'd like to know exactly what happened, but I really think it's about time that musicians and especially 50-year-old men who are probably verging on being irrelevant took responsibility for their attitudes. I mean, like, sure, I like an enemy, but I'm totally ready to put Brian Jonestown Massacre in the same category now as R. Kelly, which is the bin category. (laughs) Um, And I know there's a big conversation about art versus artist in here, but personally, like, I just don't want to listen to or buy tickets to see these guys. And like, yeah, there's currently a petition going around to cancel all of the Brian Jonestown Massacre shows in Australia, which I've signed because... I just think that the joke that he made on stage was totally unacceptable, especially in light of what's just happened in Melbourne with Eurydice Dixon's life being taken, which, you know, was a result of systemic sexual violence against women. 
Uh, as the petition states, a rape joke is never just a joke. So we'll pop a link up to that petition in our show page. Yeah, absolutely. And there has been so much backlash with the messaging around Eurydice Dixon with women needing to take responsibility for their own safety. I seriously can't believe that we're still having these conversations and we still have to fight back constantly against the notion that as women, we're the ones that are doing something wrong. Um, I also can't believe that men in power are taking tragic events like this to literally still victim blame without any mention of the actual systemic issues that need to change and especially with the slow but apparent shift in discourse over the past year with Me Too making its way into mainstream media discussions in a sometimes constructive way. I'm so furious that we're still being forced to waste time rebutting the idea that we're not taking responsibility for our safety at all times in ways that many men would have no clue about. Yeah, there was like a a police rebuttal against all of the backlash because uh, originally the police said, you know, take responsibility. Women need to take responsibility for their actions. No way they are and text their friends. Um, (sighs) And then the same police officer came out and said something along the lines of, oh, no, it's a community problem. We shouldn't be targeting men (laughs) about violence. It's just like, oh, come on. How many more times? How much does this need to happen? And also, you know, in the public eye, but also... What about all the cases that aren't reported? You know, like what about all of those things that happen to marginalised women that just don't make the news? Yeah. (laughs) Take responsibility. Anyway, men take responsibility for educating people about systemic violence, I think. Um, And Backtrack mentioned earlier that there's a vigil in memory of Eurydice Dixon. Uh, It's happening on Monday at the Archibald Fountain in the Sydney CBD from 5.30 to 7.30pm. So we'll pop a link up to that as well. This is Stella Donnelly for you now with Boys Will Be Boys. Stick around for our conversation with Adolfo Aranjuez, the editor-in-chief of Archer Magazine, right after this.
just a thought, just a thought, just a thought, just a thought. Thoughts that count. Agenda on FBI Radio. What do you ask me? You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio, and for Thoughts That Count this week, we're joined by Adolfo Aranjuez, uh, who is the editor-in-chief of Archer Magazine, to chat about the latest issue, uh, which explores history and identity. Hi, Adolfo. Congratulations on editing the latest issue of Archer. Amongst all Thank of your, you. <laughs> amongst all of your other achievements as an artist, you sound like you've been very busy. It's been very busy, definitely, <laughs> but also like very exciting that we're we're done with the first full issue of Archer that I put together. Yeah, huge. Um, what's the process of editing the publication been like? Um, I mean, look, it's been very um, new for me in a lot of ways, despite um, the fact that I've been working in the publishing industry for about 10 years. Oh, my God, I'm so old. Um, <laughs> for 10 years now in books and magazines. Um, and I guess the biggest difference really is that there's a lot more focus on empathy in in editing for Archer. So, of course, like, empathy is built into the editorial process. You need to be kind of diplomatic and you need to be sensitive to the writers that you work with. But because the nature of the contents um, of Archer are very, like, personal, like, hyper-personal and very sensitive sometimes, and because not all of the writers are professional writers, um, yeah, it was kind of, like, even more important that I kind of ramp up the empathy so I couldn't just, you know, change their sentences or whatever, which is, I guess, more typical of... of when, say, at my day job when I edit film critics, sometimes their meaning isn't very clear, I just fix it. Whereas with Archer, you can't assume things, you need to be very careful and you need to ask questions, heaps of questions. And you're basically kind of more, I guess, holding the hand of, of the, the writer in telling their story because you want it to be their story rather than the story that you're forcing them to tell, yeah. I guess. Um, so it's almost like fiction editing in a way rather than like straightforward nonfiction. So it's that kind of blend of creative nonfiction. Um, and there's also like a lot more trust involved in in this process compared to all of the other um, places that I've worked for and edited for. Um, So in particular, there's a a very strong contingent uh, of the the arts and and, and layout team for for Archer. It's quite a beautiful publication, and that's one of the things I love about it. Um, But I'm more used to, I guess, being more hands-on with all aspects of the magazine production um, stages, whereas with Archer, it's very much like I trust Alexis, the image editor, to oversee the design and to source the relevant images, and I kind of just look over what she's doing once she's done presenting them to me. Um, And yeah, so that's kind of a big change for me to not be so... I'm a bit of a control freak. Um, (laughs) So am I. (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah, so, there, so there's that kind of level of trust on that level, and there was a lot more trust as well for the writers that once they kind of um, agree to write for you, um, for me, that they will then deliver on what they say they will. And sometimes they pitch things or, like, they, they suggest ideas that sound really, really harrowing for them to, you know, reveal yeah. and divulge. And it's like, okay, I will trust that you actually will write on this for me yeah. because you said you will even if, you know, it might be difficult for you to bring up or to reflect on again. And they do, um, which was quite nice of them. It's always very rewarding when you see a finished piece. I guess there's a lot of trust in the magazine as well and in that ethical journalism process too. Like, I don't know, I've never written, I'm not a writer, but I can imagine Mm. if I was to try and write something for something like Archer, it would seem like there would be that kind of immediate sense of, maybe something that is more trusting because it's content that people are knowledgeable about even in the editorial process rather than, you know, handing handing over your story to someone who maybe doesn't have that level of respect or understanding for what you're telling. For sure. And I mean, 
Yeah, I think well, the, the beautiful thing about Archer, at least the print magazine, because the print magazine and the online um, are very different, and I think that's another thing that people sometimes have um, maybe some misconceptions about, um, but the print magazine is very much about people's stories. It's about storytelling, it's about the concrete, it's about you know the tangible, and that means that these people are the ultimate authority in their subject matter, even if they're not professional writers in that in this in the field, they are professionals or they're kind of the experts of their own lives, obviously, yeah. <laughs> and their lived experience. Um, so definitely, yeah. Speaking of storytelling, it seems mm-hmm. like even just reading through this issue, it seems like it has such a thorough intersectional approach to all of the topics, to like sex, gender, identity, and I'm wondering what the process is like of deciding what goes into an issue. Like, do people? Yep apply to contribute or do you approach people? How do you go about um, making sure that you have a really intersectional approach to all of the content? So I think um, the former editor, Amy, and I um, differ slightly in this respect. Um, but, I mean, the quick answer is yes, Archer does receive submissions. Um, we have a pitch kind of process. Um, and I think generally the, the de facto position is that the pitches are directed to online. And where something sounds like particularly... Uh, I guess, has enough gravitas or something that can be developed into the print magazine, um, then that gets forwarded onto the print team. Uh, But I guess the longer answer to your question is, um, as I said earlier, I'm a bit of a control freak, and I actually (laughs) really love active curation. So I... I like to seek people out and I like to put everything together and that's my favorite aspect of editing, to be honest. Um, because there's also only 12, I bent the rules this issue, but there are only mm-hmm. technically 12 articles per print issue, 13 in this case, um, and three image essays. Like space is really at a premium, so it's important that, yeah, as many different sectors and different voices from our various communities are represented. So I guess for me, that was kind of a call to be more active in curation rather than kind of letting people come to us because what if someone from a specific community doesn't come to us what are we supposed to do then do we just not have one yeah. I, I was so worried about making you know especially for a theme as such as history it would be ridiculous to <laughs> completely you know obscure a chapter or you know I guess to, so to speak of a certain community just because they didn't present themselves to us so I mean I don't want to go too much into detail but there were certain communities that were harder to represent than others I had a lot of difficulties with um a certain kind of topic, and I actually had three different writers pull out for various reasons. Again, I guess because of the sensitivity of the topic, but yeah, so that was very much kind of like seeking out someone suitable and willing and able also within Mm. logistical limits to deliver a piece for us. But yes, there's also an editorial committee, and I do seek their advice. So we're a very diverse team, and it starts off with, yeah, sending an email to someone, soliciting them to send through a pitch. They send through a pitch, just like a very short outline of what they want to do, you know, speaking to the editorial committee, making sure that there aren't any kind of gaps in that person's um, idea. You know, I'll tell them what I think it should, you know, where it can improve. And then the editorial team sometimes says, oh, have you forgotten this bit? Or like, have you tried maybe this angle? Um, Or maybe you're getting, you're being too harsh, whatever. Um, And so all those kind of different points of feedback then filter through to my response to the author when I say, yes, please proceed with your piece. Um, And then when the piece comes in, there's a very involved editing process, you know, developing the angle, um, where things can be elaborated, where things can be tightened, blah, blah, blah. Very much, very much involved. Yeah, at different stages. It's so interesting that, like, approaching people to contribute as well, because I guess it it also is an area of access to, like, you know, you talk so much about representation. And I think sometimes my take on it as well is that sometimes people, you know, maybe don't see themselves reflected back in publications and don't feel like they have the you know, ability or skill set, particularly if they're not professional writers, like you mentioned, you know, like I think it sounds like it would be quite a 
a fine balance between, you know, telling people stories who want to tell them and also talking to people that maybe don't think that they could do something like that. For sure. Or... No, definitely. And I, I actually like that you brought up the issue of access and underrepresentation because there is a correlation between access and, I guess, socioeconomic privilege and even, I mean, not to sound harsh, but even entitlement. And I think certain people do feel that they're more worthy of telling stories. There is a correlation between certain groups of people who belong to the dominant population who do pitch a lot. And because of that, I think it's very important that we don't just rely on the pool of people that make themselves known to us and that we spend time looking through other people's, you know, work and consider their work for our magazine. Um, so I was always on Twitter. Um, I was always chatting to people, hey, do you know anyone who knows about this thing? And then they'll recommend a person. I'll talk to that person. And they say, oh, I don't want to do it, but I'll talk to this person. Yeah. Um, I'm currently doing that for the next issue. I'm trying to hunt down someone to write on a specific topic. But yeah, so I think it's probably something systemic across the whole, you know, independent publishing or literary publishing um, world, whereby a lot of the same people get published. And that's something that Archer definitely strives against. We, we try to make sure that we continually represent underrepresented voices and tell underrepresented stories. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, that process can be tricky and it can be a lot harder, but I think that's one of the most important things about representation, right? Is like doing more work to find people or to, you know, talk to more people so that there is that level of access or representation. And I also think that's inherently part of the editor's job. Yeah, is, You know, exactly. when you're curating, you can't, I mean, it's just lazy to curate based on what's there yeah. when you can curate based on what is possible and when you can curate based on what is like politically right mm. you know um i feel there's a lot of complacency in terms of you know storytelling and we talk about the power of storytelling and how storytelling is political and it can change minds and all this stuff but if the same stories are being told then what transformations what education is being made like i don't think there is any we're kind of like stagnating at the same point yeah absolutely I chatted to Amy last week and she touched on how queer millennials and queer elders can sometimes maybe not have much of a dialogue. And that was something that I thought came up a bit in this mm. issue of Archer. And I was wondering whether that was something that you were thinking about or considering when you were editing this issue. No, no, definitely. Um, so this um, is actually quite close to my heart. Um, this idea, which I embarrassingly hadn't really thought about until this anecdote that I'm about to tell you um, happened. And it's that um, Fury, the writer and commentator, um, they were giving a, a keynote at this panel that I was speaking at. And they brought up the idea of ageism and call-out culture and how a lot of the queer elders, basically, that they knew um, had expressed a sense of feeling like lost at sea or feeling adrift because they just couldn't participate in this online discourse that's happening now because it's just happening so fast and there's even like a specific way that I guess younger queers talk on the internet that a lot of older queers find really difficult to comprehend or to even join in on and so I then kind of like took that on board for myself just the idea of the internet and, and differing generations and, and language and power and identity and wrote about that stuff for um, Right Now, an online human rights publication culminating in a massive enormous essay on identity <laughs> politics. But anyway, so that's that's all in the background. We can I'm put saying. a link up to that um, <laughs> if that's okay. You can oh feel free, <laughs> yes. It's called um The Abstraction of Privilege. It's four thousand words long. It's not something you should just like read unless you're ready. It's very heavy. Um <laughs> but yeah, so I think but these these kinds of things like all I think filter through. So when I was talking about like active curation before, um, this stuff it was all in the back of my mind to make sure that I did not just represent the various sectors and the various communities within the, I guess, the broader LGBTQIA plus spectrum, but also people from different generations. 
because each generation has gone through a very different experience of what being queer is, or a different understanding of what sex is, even, or what gender means. And so one of the pieces in this issue by Peter Waples Crow, who is an emerging Indigenous queer elder, he specifically talks about that, that intergenerational talk is so important, but we're not doing that. And a lot of what happens is that our kind of understanding of history and of our struggles become quite disconnected. And without an understanding of a bigger kind of story arc of where we've come from and where we're going, it's kind of really hard to like gather enough political momentum to, to keep fighting and to keep challenging you know, oppression and, and marginalization. When you mentioned um, language before, that was something that I actually mm. wanted to touch on in your editor's note. Um, mm-hmm. When you were discussing the use of the word queer, um, I'm just yep. going to quote you, if that's okay. <laughs> that's um, fine. <laughs> so you wrote, while the word queer isn't always warmly received within our communities because of its uh, connotations and painful origins, language does evolve and is a tool for empowerment and reclamation. In light of that, I've let contributors decide for themselves whether they wish to use the term. I encourage us all in the spirit of history and storytelling to embrace their word choices as expressions mm-hmm. of creativity and identification. And I'm wondering whether language, um, and in particular the word queer, was something that came up through your editing process that had different meanings for different generations? I mean, it definitely wasn't anything specific to this issue, magically, um, that that kind of consideration came to my mind. It was always in the back of my mind, similar to the the ageism thing that I mentioned previously. But no, this was very much like a very personal decision to add that, that asterisk. And funnily enough, it didn't come up until we were very close to going to print. I, it was during the proofreading stages, and I was reading through my editor's note and thought, I feel that something's missing. And... Yeah, I kind of thought back to how there had been some, I can't remember what spurred it, but there was some Twitter discourse about the word queer and how it's still painful for some people. And obviously this was being brought up by people of the old generation. And then younger people were, were commenting back um, in quite inflammatory ways saying, well, no, we've reclaimed it. We feel that this is the best thing to um, capture our experience of, of identity and of performance and sex, you know, it's you know because queer is quite fluid and encompassing and more amorphous, whereas I think for... Some of these older people, it was very much about still the pain and the slur and the idea that, you know, you're weird, you're not normal. So I think those kind of jarring ideas for me were very important because neither position is invalid, really. Um, Words exist subservient to us, you know, like the words that we use are words that we've come up with for specific purposes to achieve specific goals within certain contexts. And this is something I go into in that identity politics essay. So we can't let these words kind of, I guess dominate the way we think and we can't let them imprison us in any way so I thought why not acknowledge the fact that this word means so many things to different people um, and basically call everyone in that was kind of what I was hoping to do and I it took me ages to get the right tone and I didn't want to sound condescending I didn't want to sound like a bit of a dictator to say well this is my magazine so you know deal with it like what I was trying to say was yeah each writer has a right to use this word or any word um, relating to their identity in a way that makes them feel empowered because it's their story that they're telling. Um, let's just be understanding, you know, let's try to find common ground. And I think that's important in any kind of discussion, especially within our communities. There's already so much animosity from the outside world, outside of our communities. I think, you know, why are we being hostile towards each other as well? Yeah, yeah there's heaps of power in, in naming and language, and I think... I just wanted to acknowledge that in that little asterisk. Yeah, it didn't sound like you were being condescending. <laughs> I, <didn't> think, <laughs> I hope not. It kind of, I, I read it as like, you know, people choose to identify how they choose to identify and everyone should be respectful of what people want to refer to themselves as. Yeah, that's right. It was more of an invitation for solidarity, I guess, is what yeah. I was hoping to achieve rather than, you know, 
it's so easy and tempting to police other people's language in this current climate. But yeah, it was an invitation for solidarity, for respect, mutual respect. Yeah. Well, I think that it did that. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> um, this week on Agenda, we're also talking a little bit about the complex history of pride, which also came up a few times in this issue of Archer. And yes. There's this new pride flag design that's gone viral recently called the Progress Pride Flag. Um, mm-hmm. And it features an arrow-shaped stripe that incorporates a transgender pride flag and a black and brown stripe to represent queer people of colour, as well as addressing the stigma surrounding HIV and AIDS, um, which I feel like is a pretty big claim um, for, <laughs> for new stripes. And I was, yeah, I don't know, I guess reading Archie Barry's writing about trans erasure in protest spaces and specifically in feminist communities in Australia and also reading about some of the criticisms of the new design, it made me think about whether the update of this flag could be considered actual progress or whether it could be seen as tokenistic. I don't know. It's just something we were discussing on Agenda today and I was wondering whether you had any thoughts on it or if you've seen it. Uh, I've definitely seen the pride flag um, and I definitely appreciate the creator's intention. I do um, like the symbolism of it, just like approaching it from like a semiotic perspective. I like the idea that the trans flag and the, the POC colours are in a triangular shape, kind of like an arrowhead yeah. heading rightwards and I guess the conventional idea of right is like progress you know yeah. there was a little bit like I, I get it i get what it's trying to achieve and i appreciate it and look i have a two-pronged response to this question um i think the first one is that there really isn't anything inherently wrong with icons or symbols you know there's nothing wrong with representation and diversity people love talking about hollywood's you know <laughs> uptick in diversity at the moment there's nothing wrong with any of that and if anything i think that's actually quite positive because what it does is it allows us to envisage new ways that the world could be. Uh, and it's really important, for, I think, for the human brain. There's something about seeing possibilities, like in a, in a kind of concrete form, that helps us to be inspired to start making change in our own lives happen. So I think on that level, you know, representation, visibility, symbols, signs, you know, even quick quotes, quick mantras, like they do help in kind of setting the agenda Uh, helping us to think differently or inspiring us at least to start thinking differently. But the main thing is that we don't stop there. I guess that's where the danger actually begins when we think that these representational changes amount to actual change. Uh, And again, this is in that identity politics essay. I feel like like, this essay was like, it took up a huge part of my life. Um, And I'm really proud of it. It's, It's massive, but... We'll definitely put a link up to it. Please put a link up. (laughs) But yes, I think the danger comes up when we rest on our laurels and say, okay, you know, we have a new pride flag now. This means we're inclusive. We have, you know, more queer characters, more POC characters. Hollywood has fixed the problem. Yeah, totally. That Um, problem's done. Yeah. People wore Time's Up badges on the red carpet. So we've fixed that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, And that's like completely the opposite. If anything, what that could do is make us then complacent and not continue the actual fight because where are the actual kind of where, where are the funds going into say like you know like actual initiatives or infrastructure to support like cutie pork like where where is like the money to where are the organizations supporting first nations peoples or refugees you know where what are the health services being founded for people still living with, with hiv aids you know that kind of stuff like that's that's where like the grassroots things are where the actual important stuff happens and it's messier um than these kind of symbolic changes. It's really easy to talk about a symbolic change. It's very memeable. It's very easy to go viral when there's something visual and, like, packaged. Mm. Um, But, yeah, as long as we complement those with the longer-term, more difficult, 
hands-on things, then I think, yeah, it's progress in a way. Yeah. One last question was uh, like what we've already been talking about in terms of representation Mm -hmm. um, and different ways of, I guess, you know, seeing role models or seeing kind of your story reflected back to you. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm going to quote you again because it was (laughs) such a beautiful quote at the start of the issue. issue. (laughs) It says, um, the journey to acceptance has been slow going and it wasn't helped by how many LGBTQIA plus role models and historical records I had access to. Imagine how unstoppable I'd have been had this shame not weighed me down. Um, and I'm wondering which role models and authentic stories you see in musicians and whether there's a particular song you'd like us to play that's been important for you. Oh, I love this question so much. <laughs> I'm going to like try to be succinct. I will say that I am a huge fan of Rufus Wainwright. When I was in year 11, I'm pretty sure, is when I bought this album, Poses, um, I played it and it was the faggiest album ever. <laughs> and I used to play it in my sister's car when she would pick me up and she would hate me because she was like, why is this so, why is the music so weird? Like, what is he talking about? <laughs> I don't really get it. And this is beautiful for me because queer, um, so this is my take on queer, um, is that it's not just about you know, the gender and sexuality identification of queer, but it's also about the idea of queering, so kind of challenging conventions, challenging expectations. I guess this is more the meta idea of queer, and it's used in film studies and literary theory. But Rufus's work queers the idea of what music can be. Um, And the song in particular that I want to recommend is Greek Song. Um, I don't know why it's called Greek Song. Um, Some people say it's because he met a Greek man. But to me, my interpretation of the song is that it's about Jesus, and that he's, like, sexualizing Jesus. And as someone who grew up Catholic, like, that's a big deal because I always found Jesus pretty hot. So, like, there's a line um, in the song that goes, you who were born with the sun above your shoulders. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's the halo. Like, it's just totally about Jesus. Ah, um, cool. Yeah, but so, like, the song is so ambiguous, but that makes it queer. Like, this song is queer because we don't know what it means. We don't know what it's trying to achieve. But it's beautiful in its weird way. His singing style is weird. He's so droney. He's using, like, the Erhu, the Chinese, I guess, violin. There's kind of weird instrumentation. And obviously, he himself is very queer, very outwardly queer and proud about it. So it's just this beautiful kind of melange of queerness. So, yeah. Rufus Wainwright's Greek song. Oh, perfect. I'm going to have such a nice visual of you driving around with your sister and (laughs) being really confused about this song. Adolfo, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks for having me. I'm going to go out with Rufus Wainwright. You who born with the sun above your shoulders You turn me on, you turn me on You have to know her distance You turn me on You turn me on But so does she You bomb There where beauty Is existence You turn me on You turn me Your body heals my soul You bomb Where you shiver And you shudder You turn me on The girl is gone Let's go. Whoa.
Listening to Agenda on FBI Radio, and we're joined now by Annie Clark, aka Saint Vincent, ahead of her performance tomorrow night at Carriageworks as part of Vivid Sydney. Hi, Annie. Hello. You're in Tasmania, right? I'm in Tassie. How's Dark Mofo yeah. been? Oh, great. Um, I got to go to the Mona yesterday, which I've, I've been to, but um, they had a whole new collection, a lot of new things, and. Yeah, Tasmania is beautiful. It's pretty gothic down there. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a funny thing to to come down here and, um, you know, walk around and look at the placards and kind of look up the history and go like, huh, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of brutal shit happened here. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, absolutely. I've been reading a few reviews actually yeah. about the, um, the talk series, like the Dark and Dangerous Talk Space that David Walsh hosted this year instead of the film program. And it sounds like there's been some really... Uh, provocative kind of almost verging on alt-right um conversations happening wait alt-right well apparently i think that his like shtick is to get like really challenging controversial people to speak about you know kind of provocative ideas um so there's been a few interesting reviews about that at the moment okay anyway we are in a time when insane ideas uh seem to have as much airspace as as reason so yeah i don't know do you think it's helpful to have those conversations um, I'm a big believer in free speech. I don't think that, you know, for example, a speaker going to a university in the state whose views, you know, people don't agree with, I don't think that person should be stopped from speaking just because I think that's a very slippery slope. Um, but do I think, no, I think we're, we're living in a lot of cacophony and I think that it's, you know, very sectarian and tribal and, a lot of things that we're living in kind of an outrage culture. And it, the simple fact is everyone should be allowed to speak, absolutely. But not I, not all <laughs> opinions are 
as valid as others or not all ideas are as valid as others. Yeah, and I guess um, maybe not all ideas are as well substantiated or, you know, backed up as others yeah. as well. Yeah. I'm pretty excited about your show here on Sunday. And I've oh, heard <laughs> and I've heard that you're going to be showing a short film and your directorial debut, The Birthday Party. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> instead of a support band, which is awesome. And I've, I've also read that it's based on a children's birthday party that goes horribly wrong. Mm. And <laughs> I'm wondering if any of it is like based on real experience. Have you, have you experienced a birthday party um, gone wrong? Not, well, yes, I have personally experienced many parties gone wrong, but um, no, this, it is partially based on a true story, but um, not a story that happened to me, I guess I can say luckily, but I'm not happy that it happened to another person either. But um and it's, of course, a subtle little, you know, nod to Nick Cave, too. Yeah, actually, I was going to ask that <laughs> about the title. I guess yeah. uh, you're also directing a feature film adaptation of Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray. What has that process been like? Um, the process so far has just been um, collaborating with the screenwriter. And uh, I've just gotten a, the first draft of the script, which is bonkers and excellent. So... It'll be probably a little lightning round of notes and then, um, you know, start into pre-production. Was there anything in particular that drew you to that story? Um, The story itself certainly seems um, prescient for this time. And I feel like, especially with the female protagonist, like I know a few things about... um, I just know a few things personally about the themes of, of the book. Yeah, actually, I saw you speak in an interview recently about like shifting paradigms of power. And you were saying this thing that uh, you get to decide what power looks like on you. And I'm wondering, what does that power look like for you? Um, I guess when I think about power, I, a lot of times I think about autonomy. You know, the ability to make something on your own. I think about that, you know, that's a very, like, tangible form of power. Um, But also, I mean, I think we're talking about, like, cultural volcanoes are, like, erupting, you know, and, like, tectonic plates are shifting in in culture right now. And that's really exciting because it means that the distribution of power, and by power, when I'm talking about well, power in the sense of lots of different kinds of people will have a seat at the table and be able to bring their point of view and their their story as told by them, not told by another person, you know, in, into the uh, into the collective voice. And I think what that means to me, at least, is that there's like a higher likelihood of empathy because you come in contact with people who are not so like you, but also through this the stories you find out that you know all human beings are basically the same so I think there's just hopefully that empathy will lead to better um, better world I guess right now it's like all hot lava (laughs) yeah yeah I guess that kind of feeds back into what you were talking about before about um, listening to conversations or listening to people speak even if you don't agree with them necessarily um in its most like basic form, probably you know the human condition is suffering, and everyone is afraid, and everyone is suffering, and trying to figure out how not, how to suffer less. And people do that in 
totally healthy ways, and people do that in totally insane ways, and people do that in ways that hurt themselves, and do that in ways that hurt other people. And but at its core, you know, just like a very fragile little fragile being trying to not be in pain.
That was St. Vincent with Pills. You're tuned into Agenda on FBI Radio. That track was taken from St. Vincent's latest album, Mass Seduction. We chatted to St. Vincent this week ahead of her performance tomorrow night for Vivid Sydney. If you caught the end of that uh, chat just before and were wondering where it went, don't worry, here's the rest of it. I think one of the things that struck me the most recently about reading about your team was just those little decisions, well, not little decisions, I guess they're quite big decisions, but about... um, working with women in your team specifically and that just being kind of a natural process. And I was really, I guess, inspired by that uh, decision-making and just kind of you putting people around you that you know uh, would tell your story in a way that you were also trying to do. Yeah, thank you. Well, um, the great thing is that I'm in a position to hire people and I can choose to work with people I want to work with and um, very luckily and you know, surrounded by really creative, um, very talented people. And uh, to me, it was just, even in my first foray into, you know, filmmaking, uh, there were so many women on the crew, so many, you know, the DP was a woman, um, just so many women in, in the crew. So my experience in, like, I guess, both industries has been that I've worked with a lot of women in general, and also that, yeah, I like I hire very talented people, and some of whom are women, and it's, it's great. It's great <laughs> to have that power to actually be in a position to hire, and and not just necessarily hope for a job. Yeah, absolutely. I'm also really interested in your mixtape delivery service, <laughs> where listeners call in and you can they tell you their troubles and you select songs to assist them. Um, and I'm a yeah. bit, <laughs> I'm a bit sad about my best friend who used to co-host this radio show with me and she moved to a new city and I'm just wondering if there's any song that you could recommend for a long distance friendship. Oh, uh, for a long distance friendship? Um, let's see here. What about Arthur Russell, um, That's Us, Wild Combination? Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait to send that to her. Yeah. <laughs> We're also talking on the show today about representation and kind of history and seeing yourself and seeing authentic stories on screen and in music and in literature. And I'm wondering if there's anyone that's been particularly important for you as a role model or like just a really cool person to look up to or to have looked to in the past for inspiration. Um, you know who I, who I find so, um, a voice that I find really cuts through the noise of a lot of uh, modern, I guess, cultural criticism or something um, is Rebecca Solnit. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> I When I want to be clear-headed, I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. She just puts things very... Things that can get lost in the kind of, like, sea of voices she gets and and makes clear. Yeah, I think you mentioned her in your um, press pack, right? <laughs> when you Did were, I? You, well, I think in the video that you made with Carrie Brownstein and one of the questions was... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What have you been okay, reading totally. lately? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, <laughs> press back in quotation marks. <laughs> right. Yeah. That, uh, that backfired in a lot of ways, but Did it? whatever. No, I mean, it just, uh, I think it, um, I forget sometimes that my humor has um, peace. And um, I think Carrie and I were just like having a laugh, but uh, it scared a lot of journalists. <laughs> but in some ways, it scared them away from asking like a, a question they could look up on Wikipedia, which is nice. Yeah, um, and maybe you got asked less um, what it's like to play in heels. So 
Yeah, exactly. Which, <laughs> honestly, I've probably never been asked. <laughs> well, maybe it, it also just scared people from asking those questions. Or maybe it was just a nice reflection point for people to realize that a lot of questions are maybe not that fun to answer. Yeah. <laughs> so, meta. <laughs> well, I thought it was hilarious. So, thank you. Oh, good. <laughs> um, thank you so much for chatting to me today. Um, you bet. <laughs> I'm really uh, looking forward to seeing your show on Sunday. Great. I will see you on <laughs> Sunday in Sydney. I'll be waving. <laughs> you can still grab tickets to see St. Vincent perform tomorrow night at Carriage Works. Just head to vividsydney.com for more info on that one. And as picked by St. Vincent herself to celebrate long distance friendships, this is Arthur Russell with That's Us slash Wild Combination. Catch you next week. That's us. Before we got Last morning time Before we got there That's morning time Before we got there That's morning time Before we got there I just wanna be by you are Hard as that can be, it's never too hard It's hard love to see by its own light Love inside of me, it's working at night Seconds before I see you in the dark
We're leaving 